we interviewed 18 to 35 year olds. It was almost like very prophetic because the generation was sort of saying, hey, we're very concerned about a lack of leadership. We didn't use the word pandemic or health crises, but this sense that, you know, the world is sort of fraying the global system and corruption and the environment and concerns around climate change. And the sort of generation was saying, we're really concerned about a lack of leadership and what it will take to affect real change in our future. And so we have this great opportunity to try to help this generation to take up their opportunities for leadership, to become the stewards of what God is intending for the church generally and for society overall. Welcome to the Leadership Podcast. What does it mean to lead well in the 21st century? We speak to significant leaders from around the world to learn how to shift our leadership up a gear and become the leaders we're called to be. We learn from leaders from the creative industries, law, church, charities and more as we seek to make a positive impact in the world. Today, I'm speaking to David Kinnaman. He's the author of the best-selling books, Faith for Exiles, Good Faith, You Lost Me and Unchristian. He is the president of Barna Group, a leading research and communications company that works with churches, non-profits and businesses, ranging from film studios to financial services. In Barna Group's 32-year history, it has become the go-to source for insights about faith and culture, leadership and vocation and generations. Since joining Barna Group as an intern in 1995, David has designed and analysed hundreds of market research projects for a variety of clients, including the American Bible Society, Compassion, the Salvation Army, Sony, Paramount Pictures, the Gates Foundation, the One Campaign and Habitat for Humanity. In addition to client studies, David has overseen representative research among more than one million American adults, teenagers, tweens and clergy on matters of faith, spirituality, public opinion, political attitudes and cultural dynamics. This body of data is frequently quoted from pulpits and in major media outlets such as USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, Fox News, Chicago Tribune, The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. I caught up with David while he was on family holiday in Boulder, Colorado. David's so generous to give me the time, but we've known each other for over 10 years. Every interaction I have with David leaves me inspired and encouraged. He's such a humble man with a great vision of what God can do and what the church can do with the right data in its hands. You're going to love this interview with David. His humility is clear and yet his professionalism is beyond question. He has his finger on the pulse in what is happening around the world and particularly what's happening for Christians in churches. His expertise around the generations and how Generation Z and the millennial generation can best be engaged with and inspired will help all of us to lead better in this day. David Kinnaman, welcome to the Leadership Podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Tell me where you are in the world right now. Thanks, Chris. Good to be with you. I'm in uh, Boulder, Colorado. It's a beautiful place. It's gorgeous in the summer, amazing mountains. We were just doing a bunch of hiking in the Rocky Mountains. We're getting ready. We've been training for one of the 14,000 foot peaks. Wow. There are something like 50 different mountains here in Colorado that are above 14,000 feet. And so we try to go up one or two every summer. Amazing. I want to talk a little bit about history with you. In this podcast, we're helping people on their leadership journey and maybe helping them to shift up again. And when we first met, you had just bought the Barna Group from George Barna and you were in your 20s. And I just want to know, how did that come about? 
that's not a normal move for a leader. How did you have the wherewithal, the finance, the vision to want to buy the Barna Group from George Barna? Well, a couple things we should set the record straight on, which was that I think it was about 10 and a half years ago that I bought the company and I was in my mid thirties. So now my twenties, just to put things a little bit in perspective. The truth is that, you know, you look back and it's sort of one of those things where I really believe the Lord had his hand on this whole transition. You know, there were a lot of strategies and plans and aspirations and ambitions that I certainly brought to the table. I think the Lord, you know, put in my heart, some in, you know, a good and healthy way and some less so, you know, like I had to actually work through a lot of my own challenges and demons and, you know, the, the right side of ambition and the wrong side of ambition. But I've been working for him for almost 15 years at that time. So I've been at the company now for 25 years and about 10 of which I've been running the company and about 15 of which I was working for him, being mentored by him. And, you know, I think part of what was interesting about that journey was there was a time where I started feeling like, hey, I think I could do this better than you. Uh, And, you know, that felt weird to feel that way. But also, I think it was starting to become more crystallized in my mind that there was a different way to run the business and that it was sort of time for me to either put my money where my mouth was or go on and do something else. So tell me about that transition then. Often the transition from one founder, CEO to another is is a difficult one, particularly if they've got the name on the front door. How did that go about? How did he respond to your vision? Well, there's a long story of several years worth of things. I mean, maybe more than that. When I began working at Barn, I expected to work in local church ministry that, you know, this would be sort of a sideways or something in, in between a couple different things that I would do. I would end up being a pastor as my father was a pastor and my I think seven or eight of my great grandfather and and uncles and others. It was something like seven or eight of my grandfathers that are in ministry. And so I remember through those early years, really asking my wife, Jill, often and really soul searching, like, what am I good at? And, you know, trying to figure out who I was as a person, as a leader, as a worker, as someone who could contribute in some way that God would find pleasure in the things that I did with him, not just for him. And so a lot of hard work in that. And then I think after a period of time, I became clearer and clearer that the business was heading in a specific direction that we needed to, you know, really work on figuring out the next stage. And George and I started having conversations about, you know, what it might look like for me to take on the business. But it was funny because they were very theoretical for a while. You know, he was sort of like, hey, you're the next person to run this business that was probably 10, 12 years into working with him. So much so that he even said that that if he and his wife were to pass away unexpectedly, that I would inherit 51% of the business. Wow. I sometimes joke about that. And, and with him, it's sort of like, well, that's sort of a weird transition plan because you don't want to <laughs> like, incentivize me to knock you guys off. They're still alive, <laughs> you know, right? They are, yeah. They're, okay. they're, and they're still very dear friends. And they're they're just great people. They're in the prime of life, just with grandkids and busy. And, and I think he also, sometimes when we have lunch, we have lunch two, three times a year. He'll often just talk about not having appreciated the things he was doing and the ways he was, I mean, wrote 54 books and, you know, spoke all around the world and, you know, really created an incredible company. And, you know, he was always so humble about it all. So after a while, he had this sort of theoretical transition plan. And what I mean by that is like, he's like, yeah, I think, you know, you're the guy that could lead the company to the future. And then a book that I wrote with a friend of mine, Gabe Lyons, came out called Unchristian, and it did really, really well. We had a lot of interesting discussions through that time because I originally started writing it 
like he would write it and tried my best to sort of stand in his shadow or in his shoes. And then after a period of time, like that book became its own kind of metaphor for my leadership journey because I started to feel like I needed to write the book in a different manner than my mentor and boss. And Gabe Lyons gave me permission and the publisher and the editorial director that we worked with gave me permission to really do a lot of that. And then when that book did really well, I think George sort of took a step back and was like, oh, wow, this isn't just a theoretical idea. This guy really could do it. And later, several years after, he sort of said, you know, when I saw people responding to you and, you know, just how the voice and the tone and the posture you had, I felt like the church needed to hear from a new leader of Barna. And I I carry that with me today in the sense of real responsibility to honor that trust. Even as I'm the owner of the business, I still feel like I owe him great debt because he was willing to give me a shot at a time when he had every right. He was still in his mid fifties. He still had every right to sort of, you know, he started a business, his name is on the door. And um, I really felt like there was, you know, a sense of that. And, And I carry that in the sense, like, when is it that God will want me to recognize other voices or another voice that, you know, needs to lead the company. So this question of stewardship, really. So it's not just like, hey, great, I am the leader, capital T, capital L, but I'm I'm the steward. I'm how the God's sort of appointed me for this time to try to help navigate tremendous change in the church. Mm. That's a great responsibility. It's also you know, a lot of burden. And, you know, and there weren't, there weren't always like hugs and kisses between George and I. It wasn't always like super easy as I got sideways and he got sideways with what we felt like we deserved or wanted out of those transition moments. But yeah, I mean, again, I feel like if the Lord, because we honored each other and tried to honor the Lord through that process, the Lord's really been at the center of where the company is today. It's great. David, from what I know of you, I see a real clear strategist and leader and yet a gentleness and a graciousness. And those two combinations are rare. And even as you recount the story of Barna and your transition to become a leader, I can see how those two elements of strategic wisdom, leadership and grace and compassion kind of combine together. We're going to return to the subject of succession when we think about some of the research you've done recently with World Vision on the connected generation. But just at this point, I'd love to hear, you know, 25 years in this industry and you seem as passionate as ever. Why does research matter? Why do leaders need the kind of research that you're generating? What is it about this business that keeps getting you out of bed in the morning? Why does this stuff matter? Well, I'd take it to a a biblical place first. If we look at different references in scripture, we look at our vision as a company from 1 Chronicles 12, 32, the tribe of Issachar, people who understood the times and knew what God's people should do. So, you know, King David becomes the whole nation of Israel is reunited. He becomes king of all the tribes, not just Judah. And it's recalled in that section of scripture. They're all sort of assembling in a great parade of who's who. And you've got the Levites or the priests, and you've got many of these warrior tribes, but the tribe of Iskar is the smallest of the tribes, and it's the tribe who's described as people who understood the times. And that reference probably meant that they understood seasons of harvest, seasons of planting and harvest, and they were sort of strategic advisors to the nation of Israel. And there's lots of different references, I think, in Scripture. In Numbers 13, Moses sends out the spies, and there's like 10 or 12 questions that they're given, Joshua and Caleb and and the other 10. And most of that story, when it's preached, is talked about the minority report, the fact that Joshua and Caleb had the trust that the Lord could deliver Uh, Canaan, the promised land, into their hands, despite all the opposition. But Moses actually commissions almost a type of marker research studies, like, you know, to figure out what the land is like, and are there cities fortified, and, you know, what are the crops like? And I think this idea of strategy 
and of, of insight and of discernment. I mean, even through the, the wisdom literature or later in the New Testament, you know, as Jesus says, count the cost before building a tower. And, you know, there's just all sorts of ways. I and mean, in any space, like whether you're starting a family or starting a business or a civic leader or an expert in the medical sciences here with the coronavirus, you know, it's like we certainly want people who have done their homework. And there's also certain level of trust going back to that story of Joshua and the spies. We do our homework and then we find in it a way of trusting that the Lord will keep his promises. So it's a both and. It's not like, hey, just look at the numbers and then decide, but it's a both and. We try to keep that kind of vision at its core. So whether we're talking about engaging the heart of an emerging generation, you know, I think that's been for me a 10, 15 year journey of trying to help tell the church what's on the minds of the younger generation and not just to defend them, although I think they often do need defending from the judgmentalism of a church that just wants to sort of like make little mini robots, robot Christians. And so, you know, trying to help people understand what's on the minds of the next generation is one of those areas we can use a lot of strategy as church leaders so that we can partner better with them. I'm convinced and I've enjoyed our opportunities to kind of work together. But do you find that the culture in the church, well, and in the wider culture is changing? So expertise is often derided. It it turns out in some studies I've read that white evangelicals are more likely to believe disinformation that's on the internet, more likely to share stuff, more likely to be sceptical. So there are different movements within our cultures in the Western world. Some would call them the anti-vaxxers, for example example that don't like medical research or that the whole fake news conversation that comes out there do, do you find as someone who wants to do their homework wants the numbers to add up wants to demonstrate expertise is it getting more difficult is there less of an appetite for the kind of work that you do i i don't know i think it's certainly more difficult i don't know if it's, there's less appetite for what we do in in the sense that you know our web traffic and our inquiries and our business opportunities don't seem to be slowing down. But I do think it's more difficult to lead the Christian community from a center place. One of Barnes' sort of core values is a type of Switzerland, you know, that we that we see the whole picture. We're sort of, as a company, committed to the scriptural authority. And we see that many different denominations have a lot of different ways of thinking about that. And we try to serve the whole church. I mean, we are generally serving evangelical communities, but we also serve mainline and orthodox communities. And so that's an example where I think it's harder, you know, when George Barnes started the company 25 years ago, there really wasn't many places that you turn to for social research about faith. And, you know, in the UK, there was a, a gentleman, Peter Brierley, who had done quite a bit of work in Australia, a researcher named Peter Caldor, but there was not very much. And so it feels to me like one of the reasons it's harder, there's just more data there's more accessibility to information, SurveyMonkey and tools, Google Forms make it sort of easier for everyone to be an armchair sociologist. I think that's a good thing, right? I mean, I think the, the democratization of accessible research and insights only proves the point that it is more important in our lives than ever. And then we as a company have to sort of struggle with, well, what is our unique contribution to that? If everything that we started to do as a company is sort of like in the hands of your average 22-year-old who's interning at the church, what is it that we bring that's unique. We've wrestled through that. We try to, you know, get clear on that. But I actually think it's just the challenges of the internet and of tribalization that what you're saying is true, that what's happening through social media is that we're able to sort of build tighter echo chambers, mm. that we only hear the voices of people who we think are friends or, or, or complementary of our viewpoint, our worldview. And to a point that's good, but also to a point that's 
that's actually really counter, I think, what God's asking us to do in terms of being effective, what I call this digital Babylon. Mm. And so you look at Daniel in the Old Testament who lived in actual Babylon, and he had to be in, in a very complex culture navigating what it meant to listen to the voice of the Lord, to retain his Hebrew identity, but also to be able to interact with people who were very different and who had completely opposite views of his spiritually and in other ways. And so I think that's the call for us as Christian leaders and for Barna is to help the church navigate this new digital space to help sort of break down those echo chambers, to be able to hear from others who are different from us through the lens of research, and then try to take in those inputs so that we can retain our deep identity in Christ as Christians. So helpful, David. And I really value your work and you definitely play a Switzerland type role in many different Christian communities. So thank you for what you're doing. One of the last, well, most recent things that we've collaborated on is the Connected Generation report that you did with World Vision. And it was a huge study. Just talk us through the scale of it and then maybe some of the key findings. Yeah, I'd be happy to. We've been working for many years, as I mentioned, on the notion of what's the spiritual trajectory and journey of emerging adults of 16 to 29 year olds, 18 to 35 year olds, depending on where you put the markers. They're often described as millennials or generation Z or generation Z. And so recognizing that they are putting a unique stamp on spirituality and really they're the first generation, generations I should say, that are being raised in the digital environment where the authority of the church, the authority of scripture, the truth claims that Christianity makes about the world are under greater I wouldn't say assault, but they're under a greater sense of question, of inquiry, that information is more available now. And and so this whole notion, I'd say that screens disciple. What that means is people are connected into a larger world, a larger sense of being a participant in an ecosystem, whether through social media or through technology in other ways. And the world is shrinking. And and we actually found that in the study with World Vision. So we actually, I'll tell you a little more about that that study in a second, but we found that the vast majority of 18 to 35-year-olds around the world felt that events in countries outside the U.S. or outside their own context were more important to them than ever before, that they felt connected to people around the world. And so we call them the connected generation because they're in many ways more connected than ever through screens and through technology. But in a lot of ways, we found they were very disconnected, which we'll get to. So a lot of this was sort of building on work that I've been doing for more than a decade here in the U.S. and several books that I had worked on, Unchristian, You Lost Me, and then another book called Faith for Exiles about the sort of spiritual journeys of emerging adults. And so it was a real pleasure to come to work with World Vision. We had sort of said, wouldn't it be cool? Uh, we're actually with a good friend of ours, Chinny McDonald, in a coffee shop in London. And a good friend of ours, Gareth Russell and, and Chinny and I were, were meeting. And we sort of were dreaming a bit about, wouldn't it be cool if we could sort of tell the story of faith among young adults around the world? And World Vision just seemed like a really natural partner given their global reach and given the fact they've got offices and Christian people of faith in so many different places and how they could help us translate surveys and understand context and get commentary from leaders in those contexts. So we ended up interviewing more than 15,000 people. Amazing. All social scientific research, not convenient samples. So, you know, there's like real cost to that. In other words, we, we didn't just put out a survey and just get whoever and as many people as we could. It was a very rigorous process. And it was 25 countries and nine languages, 18 to 35 year olds, Christian and non-Christian alike. And uh, we were really able to develop this sort of global profile of a connected generation. It's such a privilege to be able to tell those stories. And we're still in the middle of, we've launched a report in a microsite called theconnectedgeneration.com. But 
there's still so many more stories, I think, that are in the data. The Canadian report's launching a little bit later this year. The UK report launched just a few months ago. And we're sort of just in the middle of rolling out and beginning to see and understand the implications of the data in these various contexts. It's interesting that we called it the connected generation. And we've seen in the lockdown, you know, this global pandemic, an event like the death of George Floyd connected with not just millennials but definitely millennials were caught up in this whole black lives matter movement and you know i live in a small little village and the 2000 people that live in our village still wanted to have a protest last weekend to mark black lives matter so we are connected even though we're really socially dislocated from one another many of us aren't spending a lot of time outside of our homes but you mentioned the kind of paradox that they felt connected and yet disconnected at the same time. Can you speak into that a bit? What, what did we find out about these millennials? Well, first of all, one thing to acknowledge is that the research only included people who were connected to the internet. And so we interviewed in 25 countries, more developed countries than undeveloped countries, but we had a range of countries that were included. You know, we had Colombia and Brazil and South Africa and Nigeria, along with countries in Southeast Asia, et cetera. And it was all continents were represented aside from Antarctica, of course. So we didn't do any interviews with penguins. <laughs> but what we found was that first, we should acknowledge that part of the disconnection is that even our methods now of knowing about, you know, sort of hearing from these young adults exclude those who don't have connectivity or who don't have the literacy to complete a survey. And so we're only looking at a slice, a really large slice in most countries, but in many countries, we're still unable to sort of interview, at least through the methods that were most affordable for this project, those that are not connected. And then in addition, to that, among those that we interviewed, we found a real range of sort of healthy levels of connection with the world, with others around them, mm. and with a sense of purpose and optimism about their future. So we came up with this metric of eight items called connection. And we looked at things like, do you believe the events around the world matter to you? Are you connected with other people? Do people close to you believe in you? Do you feel trusted and loved by those around you? And for example, only one in three young people said that they felt like someone believes in them. And we found something similar about the percent who sort of said that they believe that someone loves them. And so they're much more likely to say that events around the world affect them than they are to say that they're socially connected with those closest to them. And then there are all sorts of ranges, you know, between those that were very healthy in terms of emotional and, and relational connection, and those who were very disconnected. And positive story was that those who were connected with communities of faith, and especially with Christianity, were even more likely to express healthy levels of connection with their futures and with those around them. But it wasn't as, as though everyone who goes to church is sort of like automatically in a healthy state. And so really interesting sort of like the emotional challenges, the mental health challenges that this generation faces were very front and center. And so they're more connected than ever, but at the same time more disconnected. And in some ways, the data, looking back, we launched the study in September of 2019, looking back, it was almost like very prophetic because the generation was sort of saying, hey, we're very concerned about a lack of leadership, about we didn't use the word pandemic or health crises, but this sense that, you know, the world is sort of fraying, mm -hmm. that, you know, sort of the global system and corruption and, and the environment and global warming and concerns around climate change. And the sort of generation was saying, we're really concerned about a lack of leadership and what it will take for us as a society, as 
a global society to affect real change in our future. So, you know, I think this is a an important moment for us to not just look back on where we've been, but to really look forward and to look forward with this generation. And that was really one of our great joys in doing this. So I'm 46 years old, you know, we interviewed 18 to 35 year olds. I feel like these are my just younger brothers and sisters in, in Christ and those who do not yet know Christ. And so we have this great opportunity to try to help this generation. They're not perfect, but to take up their opportunities for leadership, to become the stewards of what God is intending for the church generally and for society overall. So helpful. I mean, it it is confusing, isn't it? The connected, disconnected. So the connected to global events is, in one sense, relationships at a distance, isn't it? That I can be connected to the events of one man being killed in Minneapolis, and that affects me. I can't do a lot to change it, but it affects me and it makes me feel upset or angry or it empowers me to go and do something. And yet I don't have people around me that I can rely on. I don't have people that believe in me. And so some people used to talk about a substitute, isn't it? We substitute face-to-face, genuine relationships where there might be accountability and encouragement and challenge for at a distance relationship where I can kind of take it as much as I want. You know, it costs me nothing. Is that an unfair analysis of what's happened? Because... How do you interpret the connected-disconnected paradox? Well, I think first you've you've mentioned something I think we should really double-click on, which is the notion that the video capture of a black man's death in Minneapolis travels around the globe virtually instantaneously within 24, 48 hours, within weeks. People are up in arms and protesting despite the health risks, right? And I think there's another important part of the story. We don't have any social proof of this, but the fact that most of the world has been in sort of global lockdown for several months at the time of George Floyd's death and sort of the raw feelings that people have around whether to trust governments or not to trust governments and the sense of being maybe willing to take a deeper look at life and what makes it meaningful and then to see an injustice in that way. And I think that's part of what's happening is that this generation in the Connected Gen study with World Vision, we found that you know human suffering was one of the things that many young people said causes them to doubt God and um, hypocrisy of religious people, science, unanswered prayer. So there are a lot of interesting questions this generation is asking And when I say that screens a disciple, um, that's a good example because here it is, we have, you know, the horrific injustice of a a man, you know, who dies at the hands of, of police officers. And the church has a responsibility then to provide the right kind of lament and opportunity to give voice to these deep sufferings. So whether we're talking about George Floyd or we're talking about big global events, I mean, coronavirus has been interesting because it's sort of like this invisible thing. It doesn't show up on a social media feed, but it still is affecting people's lives in very substantial ways. And that could also include things that are more, much more local in nature or, you know, sort of bullying in a local school environment or whatever. And so, and and by the way, not to mention the fact that if you Google any of the more miraculous stories in scripture, Mm. Wikipedia, for one example, gives you great reasons to sort of say, well, you know, sometimes people say, you know, this is true, but, or like Daniel was sort of a, the book of Daniel is written about a a hypothetical character, you know, sort of it's a fictionalized character. And so all throughout a young person's experience, as it is true for all of us, but especially for a young person whose whole experience is being mediated through those screens, there is this real sense in which 
this disconnected, connected phenomenon. It's like we're more connected to something that happened because we experience it in some way through the social media feeds that we have. And so you're seeing the brutal death of someone, a nine minute video, and you're experiencing it like you're there on the street that day. And not like in the past, 72 hours later, it shows up as 400 words in the newspaper or even just like, you know, a talking head on screen but you're there or to sort of flip over to the example of trust in scripture. So, you know, you're sitting in a worship environment and your pastor or your priest is sort of preaching through or teaching about something and you read about Daniel. And so then you Wikipedia during the sermon from the pew, you know, the prophet Daniel, it's like, well, most people believe, most scholars believe this is just a fictional character. And so this question of belief and what's real and am I connected? So George Floyd's death feels so real to the whole world's Mm -hmm. population who might have experienced that kind of injustice themselves or who realize for the first time that maybe their silence and complicity is part of this. And we certainly see that with this younger generation, there's a lot of activism, a lot of desire to be used to solve the world's complex problems like climate change and Mm. and pollution and corruption and injustice. And so anyway, I think this connection, this connection theme is such an important one for Christian leaders to realize. And then how can we ultimately be most and best connected to to God himself who's created us, Mm. to others, to ourselves and our own souls, to a sense of purpose in our communities and in our world, to the Mm. environment. And that's a kind of shalom that I think scripture teaches. And that's where I think we could really help partner alongside this next generation to teach a richer version of how it is that Christianity shows up in the world. It's not just about saving our souls. That's the one dimension of shalom that we would be have our, our hearts right with the Lord. But there's also a, a type of shalom that comes as God's people pursue a type of peace. And we follow the Prince of Peace. And we want to see peace in our relationships with others, our peace in our relationships in our communities and in our societies, peace with our environment. And so there's a lot of work I think we have to do to help bridge those disconnections into truer and deeper, more biblical vision of shalom, the deepest kind of connection. The Leadership Podcast is brought to you by World Vision, a global Christian humanitarian organization with over 70 years of experience working alongside communities, churches, donors, partners and governments to help the most vulnerable children reach their full potential by tackling the root causes of poverty and injustice. When children have the love, safety, education and physical resources they need, they are empowered with choices for the future. Choices they can use to create lasting change in their life and community. World Vision wants to help you provide opportunities for new leaders in your church and community to rise up with a sense of hope and the ability to make a difference. Visit www.wvi.org forward slash leadership to learn more about today's guest, other episodes and how you and your ministry can partner with World Vision. I want to talk about succession. That's where we began our conversation, how through one way or another, George Barner handed the baton on to you to take Barner into the next phase. And that was one of the things that I got out of the Connected Generation, that that doesn't often happen, that often the current generation of leaders are not great at handing on or making room or making space for the next generation. But just before we go there, I wonder, as you think about this millennial generation and their activism and their desire to see justice take place, are you optimistic about what this means for the pursuit 
pursuit of justice in our world, for organisations like World Vision that are trying to lead the charge on behalf of the most vulnerable children, many millions of children that go to sleep hungry every night. Do you feel there's an opportunity moment for Christian aid and development charities to kind of harness or release or empower this generation to play their part in making a significant difference on some of these intractable problems? I absolutely do. And that comes from the data. You know, when we look at the perspectives of this generation, the study actually, the Connected Generation, looked at three different elements, sort of life in the anxious age, that's the sort of the emotional profile family life, single life, all sorts of really interesting demographic trends. Second was around sort of resilient discipleship and how the church partners with young people to make resilient disciples in the connected generation. And then this third era was potential for impact and how, and we've been speaking a lot about these themes, how this generation doesn't want to just be consumers of faith, but participants in what God is doing in the world. And I think we should really call out, like I really believe part of what we face as a Christian community is that in some cases, nonprofits, non-religious NGOs, non-governmental organizations are doing it better than the church. And so they're providing a type of, I don't want to call it a false gospel because I don't think that's the case, but they're providing a route for people to express that potential for impact in a way that feels more fulsome than does the church. One of the phrases we've come to understand from young people through hundreds of thousands of interviews we've done over 10 years is that they're more willing to be challenged than the church is willing to challenge them. And so what has worked for the boomer generation of a type of, and it's easy to say this, I don't mean this in a cynical way, but a type of consumer Christianity where you just come on Sunday and you kind of put your offering in the plate and you sort of, most of the rest of the week, you sort of live like you want to live. That's just not going to work for this generation. And I don't mean to say that that's true for all boomers. It's just that's the style of the way, you know, a lot of boomer church around the world, especially in the U.S., has emerged. But I think there's an incredible opportunity for the church to become a laboratory of leadership, both in terms of helping people be vocationally discipled into the kind of work God intends for them, that that, in fact, is one of the ways we pursue justice in an unjust world. If we're concerned about human trafficking, we aren't just signing up for a cause, but we actually pursue perhaps a legal career and figure out how we can pursue that in our vocation, not just sort of our consuming a cause, how we could, if we're interested in telling the truth about sort of corruption, we become a journalist or a filmmaker. All these things that are in the hearts of this emerging generation to do in the world also have a deep connection, not just to making a living, but to making a difference. And I think there is an incredible way the church can help disciple people into that. Hey, you know, you've heard it said that if you, you know, join this protest, you'll make a difference. Well, I tell you that there's something even deeper that, you know, you can become the kind of person who lives a true protesting life, who actually lives out these deep convictions. And that's when we find our identity in Jesus, when we understand his desire for deep and lasting reconciliation in our hearts and in the world. And so that Christianity doesn't just draft off the cultural currents, but it actually helps to redefine those things in a deep and lasting way that this generation says, no, no, actually finding our heart's true home in Christ and in the church, this is the way we actually make the deepest and longest lasting impact in the world. So I have great hope that that is the kind of vision that this generation takes with them and has and is living out in the world. And that was actually some of the most exciting stuff from this new study we did launching last fall, both the Connected Generation and a book called Faith for Exiles, was we got to interview the 10% of the most resilient young Christians around the world. And it was a very inspiring study because we were just seeing how the church is in great hands when it comes to the youngest generation of Christians. They certainly have their challenges, but they are absolutely alive for Christ and driven by seeing his purposes fulfilled in the world. 
So exciting. I've always got a lot out of the writings and teachings of John Stott, and he used to describe preparing a sermon with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in another, trying to connect the two horizons of the text of Scripture and the thoughts and mindset of today. And your work has helped make that bridge possible for all sorts of Christian leaders, not just preachers and teachers. So that's really encouraging that there is a way to connect the never-changing gospel with an ever-changing culture. And it brings us right back to where we started, this idea of succession. And I love that you feel that this rising generation is a safe pair of hands for the church to transition to in in leadership, whether that's in congregational life or business life or not-for-profit life, I guess. What is it that you would say to this current generation of leaders that would help them pass that baton on well? What do they need to be doing? What can they be learning? Well, I think there's several things from my own story. Number one, don't be in too big of a hurry. I think that's some things I see in millennials and Gen Z, that they're often in very big hurry to try to get to a position where they can finally make a difference. And at least the way the Lord used my life and story so far is that, you know, this first 10 years, this first 15 years of working for George Barna, thinking I knew more than I did, having more ambition than probably my capabilities uh, allowed, and again, I don't sort of say like, hey, guys, like slow down. You're going to, you know, like, because I actually think that it's also true that young people should be given as many opportunities as they can take on. And we should throw you into the deep end of the pool and let you sort of sink or swim. But I think there's this real sense in which it takes a long time to develop a craft and to develop a skill set and to be patient with that process. Um, another thing for my story is like try to be as close as you can to the kinds of people who could be true mentors and who are running things and make their lives as not as easy as they can, but like really work hard, try to understand their perspective and get to understand what it is that drives them and the tensions that they feel. Because you know, it turns out when, as soon as I took on the business, almost like the first week, it was like, I thought I could do it better than George. And then the first week I was like, oh, that's why he did it this way. And I was like, <laughs> I realized why he kept it simple, why he did certain things the way he did. And my great armchair wisdom, right? Like sort of sitting back and just observing what he was doing was not as easy as it was. So I think really focusing in on the sort of interior journey is really, really important. And kind of the person God's crafting you to be, how he's working on your character, even when you feel critiqued and criticized and alone and misunderstood and, you know, that the the old guy or the old woman isn't giving you, you know, that you're shot. Like God's actually using that to help destroy your pride. God can't use people that are arrogant. And so being in a relationship where you're, you know, having to work harder than you imagine and be, you know, like I remember writing, you know, pages and pages. I mean, like tens of thousands of words for George Barnett, for our clients or for our web audience. And George would absolutely just destroy it and just, you know, rewrite it and, <laughs> and do it differently. And I'd be like, man, come on. Like you're wasting both of our time. I remember it was like year seven before the very first article that I wrote that he, uh, that he's like, Hey, great. This is pretty good. We're going to go ahead and post it without many changes. And uh, I was like seven years of just, <laughs> just working away, man. And so I think this idea of just patience and recognizing that God's using all of those things to get you prepared for what he's going to do through you. And it's not that he, those years are silent, wasted years. It's just that he's forming a certain kind of character and a certain sort of willingness to be used in a way like that. So, you know, what happens if you're in an environment where you don't have that mentor? Well, I'm sure there's ways you can reach out. Maybe it's not in the workplace, but there's other ways you can find meaningful mentors who can help you make sense of your vocational and work-related opportunities. There's other wise people in your life or could be who can help you with that. 
maybe you're not going to be in the same job as I have for, you know, 25 years. That's a very rare story these days. But continuing to develop the kinds of broad sets of skills, even things that feel like a waste of time in terms of, like, I remember learning desktop design, you know, in the first few years, trying to like design brochures for the company. And, you know, I never resented it, but I was like, what am I doing? You know, it's like, am I good at this? And I still use those skills now in different ways when I'm working on a PowerPoint or developing some sort of presentation. You know, the fact that I have capabilities of using these tools means I don't have to wait on a designer to get something done for me. But anyway, you know, just recognizing that each of these things, God's layering experiences and character building and skills and a heart to serve the church. And then finally, just guard your heart against cynicism because it's so easy in this society, in this moment, to be cynical about the church, about the leaders you work for, about your peers, about government. There's plenty of things to be critical of, but being cynical means that you lose your prophetic edge. And so I think there's a a great opportunity for this generation to keep cultivating that non-cynical what our friend Mark Sayers says, a non-anxious presence in the midst of how God's sort of wiring us to try to help change the world, you know, alongside what his thoughts and desires are. As always, I come away from a conversation with David with a great sense of hope. I love the fact that the man that knows the most about the state of the church and leadership and the various generations that are about to arise is a man full of hope. Full of hope because he believes this generation is a safe pair of hands. We can trust them. Those of us that are in leadership need to be looking for ways we can raise up that next generation. We can give them opportunity right now. But I love his commitment to patience too. I think that's a real leadership challenge. If we do want to shift up again, we need to be prepared to invest time in our craft. Whatever our leadership gifting is, whether it's communication and speaking, or whether it's analysis and strategic thinking, we need to invest time to perfect these so that we might bring the best that we've got to any leadership task ahead of us. My name's Krish Kandaya and this is the Leadership Podcast. Please like this podcast wherever you listen to it and share it so that we can raise up a new generation of leaders who are able to shift into the next gear that's needed for such a time as this. Thanks for listening.